Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman, IPFT Director based in New York City at Israel Policy Forum, joined by Neri Silver, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and policy advisor for Israel Policy Forum. We are here for an emergency wartime briefing. I think this is our fifth week doing this, um, although it's been a full two weeks since we last spoke. How's it going, Neri? Uh, it's going all right, a bit better. This is, I think, week six of the war and week five of the emergency wartime Israel policy pod. And I am usually based in Tel Aviv, but I'm coming to you from Jerusalem. Uh, There's an IPF delegation here, so uh, I'm a a journalist currently based in Jerusalem, uh, a stranger in a strange land. (laughs) We'll definitely get to what's going on in Jerusalem uh, and neighboring areas towards the end of this podcast, but it's been quite a while since we last spoke, so we have a lot to cover today. And we're going to start with just the general state of play before we get into the many confusing details and the many actors playing in this multi-theater war right now. But we have the IDF relatively successful, it seems, in their operation in the Gaza Strip, striking thousands of targets, conquering Hamas strongholds and Jabalia, other important areas. Uh, as of a week ago, I heard they, were, they had destroyed 130 tunnels, although it's likely more by now. They are currently encircling three different hospitals in the Strip, which are known to host terror operations while also being, of course, functioning hospitals. Yes, we will get into all of these things later. Uh, there were finally dual citizens and others managing to be evacuated out, out of the Strip since we last spoke, which is a very positive outcome because on our last pod we had discussed there were many reports of Hamas preventing folks from evacuating initially. So it's a very uh, big relief to hear that. We also see um, Israel uh, incorporating humanitarian pauses for several hours a day to allow aid into Gaza, which when we last spoke was also something on the fence. Um, Netanyahu has been speaking up about his plans for the day after of Gaza, which there's much to discuss on that. Uh, (laughs) Such as they are. (laughs) On to, I guess, uh, less positive uh, events. There are 230,000 Israelis internally displaced from North uh, and the South, 800,000 internally displaced within Gaza, uh, which mostly uh, moving from the North into the South. Uh, Hamas claims 11,000 Gazans killed. Seems you won't have any reliable numbers, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, knowing that even if the 11,000 number is true, it of course includes terrorists in that number. But whatever the number of civilians is, it is of course tragic, and even one civilian will always be too many, feel like too many. And it is important for us to remember that no war is ever cost-free on top of the civilians in Gaza who have been killed. And of course, we know the 1,400 Israelis who were killed on October 7th. Uh, there were 46 Israeli soldiers killed as well while trying to root out terrorism in the Gaza Strip. And again, even one is always too many and always terrible. Um, On to the West Bank, there's much instability there, which is par for the course when there's any operation in Gaza, especially one of this magnitude. 1,500 Palestinians arrested, most of them connected to Hamas, 172 instances of settler violence against Palestinians since October 7th. So things are heating up there. And then there's Hezbollah, which we will talk about in the north, always trying to insert themselves and um, much for us to talk about with regards to their intentions. Anything we're missing from this before we delve uh, right into the operation in Gaza area? I mean, that was a good around the horn, Shani, and there is uh, a lot going on. It's a hugely complicated campaign and war and just overall situation here. Uh, As one colleague put it, if you zoom out, right, this is the world's most complicated hostage crisis with some 240 Israelis and foreign nationals being held still uh, in the Gaza Strip. And the IDF currently in the heart of Gaza City, fighting very 
difficult conditions and uh, very densely populated urban terrain, while the enemy is mostly underground, right? So very difficult uh, underground tunnel fighting and rooting them out from there, combined with a multi-front theater, whether it's Lebanon or the West Bank or Yemen with the Houthis or even uh, Shiite militias aligned with Iran in Iraq, uh, combined with the magnifying glass that is always uh, Israel-Palestine in the conflict, so obviously everything we're seeing around the world, and combined with a what was already a combustible domestic Israeli political situation, uh, all of that put together is uh, what we're dealing with at the moment. So we're going to try to make some some sense of it. So, look, if we just start with the with the Gaza operation, I found it interesting how you how you framed it in terms of X number of tunnels and uh, you know the metrics of the ground operation really into the heart of the Gaza Strip. So IDF forces are really uh, focusing solely on the northern Gaza Strip uh, inside and in the in the immediate vicinity of Gaza City. Um, it seems like they have a good hold of at least above ground in terms of the northern Gaza Strip. Uh, yesterday, they, uh, the IDF released uh, pictures of the Golani Brigade in uh, the Palestinian parliament in Gaza City. Uh, they've taken over the security corridor, what it's called, in the Ramal neighborhood in, in Gaza City. And obviously, they've encircled a number of hospitals, uh, including Shifa Hospital, the biggest hospital uh, in Gaza City. So all of that uh, is true. And we should also mention they've done all of this in two and a half weeks since the start of the ground operation. So I think the pace is is a lot quicker than we all imagined it would be in terms of getting to the very heart of the Hamas regime, right? But having said all that, uh, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And I just got off uh, a call uh, a few minutes ago, and even even Israeli officials uh, admit it, uh, because you're dealing not only, by the way, with northern Gaza, you also have the whole issue of southern Gaza, which uh, TBD remains to be determined. Uh, but really, there's still massive hundreds of kilometers of underground tunnel network that is really where the Hamas... Uh, the Hamas militants uh, and their weapons and their rockets and also the hostages are being held, uh, whether in northern Gaza or southern Gaza. So uh, the IDF is moving very methodically, uh, but very effectively, I would argue, uh, inside inside the Strip. Um, we should also mention, just kind of zooming out a little bit, but uh, rocket fire from Gaza, um, I think the past half hour notwithstanding, uh, has, has uh, decreased significantly. Uh, over the past week and a half. So if really in the start of the, the war, you had multiple sirens even in Tel Aviv and north of Tel Aviv, uh, now you may get one siren a day, if that, and there have been days where uh, there have been zero sirens. And so that translates really into a lot of the center of Israel, the heart of Israel, uh, going back, I wouldn't say to normal, but to a sort of normalcy. Uh, people uh, going to work, people walking down the street, uh, there's traffic again on the highways in Israel. So it's very weird where you have uh, a war essentially in southern Israel, inside Gaza, and a war very much on the northern border with all the displaced and evacuees from, from both regions. Uh, but in terms of the overall country, uh, there's a, uh, again, I hate to use the word normalcy because nothing is normal here, but you, you do have a sense of a return to some kind of routine, which is very much unlike a month ago. Uh, remember when we were talking, Shani. So that's essentially the state of play inside the Gaza Strip. And we'll probably get into it a little later on, but uh, 
you know, I always get the question, who, you know, who's winning, who's losing? I think it's too early to say. You know, so the IDF has had tactical and operational successes, like I said, going into the very heart of at least the northern Gaza Strip. But if you ask uh, the Hamas leadership and uh, Yahya Sinwar, the Hamas leader in Gaza, whether he's losing, and I know we're going to get into this in a second, uh, but I don't, I'm not convinced he would say he's losing the war just yet. Although I, I will remind you that there is this tendency in the Middle East for folks to claim victory when they have not, in fact, been victorious, right? I think Hamas would say that October 7th was a success. And of course, perhaps for them and their standards, it was. And yet they are obviously many, many more Palestinians are going to ultimately be killed um, than Israeli civilians. So depend if that's how they want to measure their success, which I imagine it, it is, unfortunately, um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, well, we have to put our Middle East glasses on, Shani, <laughs> and look at it uh, not only in terms of their strategy and their um, kind of religious extremist uh, worldview, right? They're, they're real believers. They're real ideologues, Hamas and, and the leadership, uh, but also through the prism of, of asymmetric warfare uh, when you're dealing with a, a Western modern state and an army like the IDF uh, going up against a terrorist group like Hamas embedded in a civilian population uh, that has its own aims, its own methods. Uh, it's a very, very tricky proposition. And on top of that, uh, the kind of global pressure and the magnifying glass that I was alluding to. So, you know, if we want to get into it, essentially Hamas's strategy uh, to win this war is to play for time and to run out the clock. And so it's hoping that at a certain point, uh, Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Dev, the military chief, and the others that are responsible for bringing this calamity uh, on all of us, especially their own people in Gaza right now, they, they're hoping that Israel is stopped uh, at some point, probably in the coming weeks, by the international community, by Washington and others, you know, all the protests uh, in the West especially. Uh, Hezbollah's chief Hassan Nasrallah, in his speech on Saturday, said exactly that. He said... Uh, look at all those people demonstrating in London and Paris and New York. Uh, it's major pressure on the Israelis and the Americans. So the other side, as it were, is very, very uh, clear uh, about the issue of pressure on Israel and the issue of time. So if Israel is forced to stop at some point, then Hamas, in their, sa- in their tunnels, they and their operatives and militants and probably the, their families and the hostages... Uh, and a whole bunch of weaponry and rockets can pop out and declare victory. Uh, and that will be uh, their victory. Essentially, they'll, they'll live to fight another day and to cut a hostage deal, and essentially Israel will have been forced to stop. Uh, on the flip side, victory for Israel, I think uh, it's been very clearly put out there by the senior leadership here, whether Bibi Netanyahu or the Defense Ministry of Gallant, uh, essentially to topple the Hamas regime in Gaza, essentially regime change in Gaza, demilitarize uh, Hamas, essentially demilitarize Gaza so it can no longer pose a threat, and return of the hostages. Uh, As of yet, Israel has not achieved uh, those three goals. Uh, You know, you could say that the Hamas regime and control in Gaza has been shaken. It's kind of on on its last legs. Uh, But there's still probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of uh, Hamas terrorists in those tunnels, along with an un- unknown quantity of weapons and rockets, uh, along with some 240 hostages. Thanks for those reminders, Nari. And 
honestly reflecting on my earlier comment, I'm reminded that as unfathomable as this may be, when Palestinian civilians die, it's not necessarily considered a loss for Hamas by their standards, right? I, I don't think they even see it that way. And we've heard some really awful comments in their belief that this is the role of the Palestinian people, um, sort of to, to be martyrs for the cause, that their cause, of course, yeah. which is terrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there was a Hamas leader, I think it was Ghazi Khamed, or maybe uh, another one, you know, sitting very snugly somewhere uh, outside of Gaza, saying, well, it's not our role to run Gaza and provide for the citizens there and the residents of, of Gaza. That's the UN's job, something to that effect, very dismissive, which uh, you could argue a different leadership in Gaza, a different even Hamas leadership would have approached it very differently and not brought about this calamity on, on their own people, which are now, I think you quoted 800,000, I think there's probably a million Palestinians from northern Gaza primarily, but not only, uh, displaced from their homes. Absolutely. Now back to the um, theoretical success of this operation from an Israeli military perspective. The defense minister, Yoav Gallant, was quoted saying Hamas has lost control of the Gaza Strip. Um, and that, that, is, that is a success, uh, certainly for the IDF. Now, um, I want to know to what extent that's actually true, where you see it as true, because obviously it's, if it's true, it's only true in the north, if that. Um, And I will be honest, at the onset of this war, and we spoke about this on the pod, the idea of actually dismantling Hamas seemed very daunting, and I would have said impossible. So I'm wondering if if you still feel that's true at all, and how close is the IDF to achieving their strategic goals? To what extent has it been successful? I kind of wish, I'm sure the IDF has this, but we obviously don't, a map of like the tunnels and the Hamas strongholds to see kind of how far they've come. Obviously, it would be a huge intelligence failure if I had that map, but, um, but it's something I've been thinking about sort of a lot um, in, in, the, in the past week. So I'm um, curious your thoughts um, on, on that. So Shinny, you would make a very good journalist. Uh, not that I would want that for you, but uh, these are the exact questions that we, we keep asking. And uh, there's no answer because it's, it's classified and um, that's, that's not put out there, not even in the Israeli press. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I'm not entirely convinced the Israelis know themselves the answers to all these very important questions. Uh, some of our older listeners may remember a U.S. defense secretary named Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, after 9-11, he talked about the known unknowns, so basically the things we know we don't know, uh, and it's a lot of the things you, you just touched on, the known unknowns, right? So how many, you know, how, how extensive is a tunnel network? Where does it go? Is it connected between North and South Gaza? Likely, yes, but to what extent? Uh, when they evacuate or likely evacuated their massive command and control center and operation center under the Shifa hospital in Gaza City, can they move everything south? Is there a replacement command and control center? Um, you know, How much provisions do they have underground? Essentially, these are underground cities. Tunnels is, is a bad term for it. So massive underground cities, right? You need to uh, run those underground cities. You need to provision those underground cities for uh, tens of thousands of people, likely, like I said, do they have enough supplies? How much? How long will it last for? Uh, can you get to the tunnels by not necessarily going into the tunnels, but is there a way to neutralize the tunnels from above ground? We keep hearing about the IDF kind of trial and error, you know, new technological methods, but we don't really know uh, what those are and what they're trying to do. Uh, I assume they are trying all kinds of different things, but we just don't have any visibility into into what they are. So if you start neutralizing the tunnels, 
do you then force Hamas above ground? And then that's a whole different ball game. All these things uh, we don't know. And again, on top of the the big known unknown is that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and maybe kind of other smaller groups are holding almost 240 people underground. Where are they? Where are they? So presumably they've also been moved to southern Gaza, but but where? Uh, so those things are uh, are the key questions. Uh, and also just in terms of something like rockets. Uh, so we know they fired a ton of rockets really in the first two weeks. And like I said, it slowed down. Is that because the IDF is hitting their command and control and hitting the rocket stores and the rocket launchers? Or is it just a choice by Hamas to essentially uh, hold their fire and conserve their their arsenal for later stages of the war? Uh, again, I hope the IDF has answers to these questions. I, they may not, uh, maybe just assumptions. Uh, but again, all these things tied together, uh, they may sound like little details, but they're not because they will have a massive impact on the the course of this war and whether Israel is able to actually achieve uh, the objectives it set out to, to achieve uh, after October 7th. Speaking of Hamas command and control, one of the more difficult issues to discuss or even think about is the, the three hospitals, specifically the Al-Shifa hospital. And I'm hoping you can help us understand um, a little bit more about the situation. Obviously, the Al-Shifa hospital is, I believe, the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip, if not one of them. And you have not only patients there, but also many who are sheltering, who are evacuated from their homes. Now, many people know that Hamas has major operations, if not the major operations, um, being commanded from beneath the hospital. And if Israel is to succeed in their goal of disarming Hamas, it's very hard to imagine them doing so without going after those operations which are beneath hospitals, schools, mosques, since so many are within those institutions. And of course, this is really unbearable to think about given how many civilians are sheltering there. Um, but what's the situation now at Al-Shifa? And of course, with regards to the humanitarian situation, I'd like to know. And uh, to what is the extent of Hamas operations there? And is it inevitable the IDF will attack? And I also would love for you to share, and we've heard a lot of questions this week about this, what precautions are being taken by the IDF to ensure the safety of those patients and civilians? Uh, what role is Hamas playing, not only in being the reason, of course, this is all happening, but also in preventing civilians from evacuating or receiving supplies? We heard reports of them refusing fuel. So what's the status? Over here. So uh, a lot of very well-taken questions, Shani. So I'll start pretty much in reverse order. So, uh, you know, essentially Hamas for years has used Shifa Hospital. It is Gaza's biggest hospital as its major, uh, major command center, whether the hospital itself or underneath the hospital. Um, and again, I've alluded to this in previous episodes, but I know this from a non-Israeli source. Uh, that that is accurate. So whatever people want to believe uh, about Shifa, uh, yes, it is a hospital, and it's also a Hamas command and control, essentially a military installation. So uh, that's just by way of uh, by way of uh, point of information. Number one. Number two. Uh, Israel, as it has done with regard to the entire north of Gaza, but especially Shifa in say recent days and the past two weeks, they've been asking people to evacuate move south, move south. And initially, I think tens of thousands of people took shelter in Shifa. Uh, I think over the past few days, that's uh, thinned out. So it's unclear what the exact number is. It might be maybe 1,500 people, uh, both patients, medical staff, and people sheltering uh, are left in Shifa. Uh, again, going back to what I said earlier, there's a lot of 
non-clarity, uh, fog of war over what's actually happening inside the Gaza Strip. So we get updates from the IDF uh, to the extent that they can answer the questions. But from inside Gaza, both due to the war, uh, but even irrespective of the war, if you have, say, the head of Shifa Hospital giving interviews and issuing tweets, which he has been doing uh, repeatedly in recent days, about the very dire humanitarian situation inside the hospital. And again, I, I do believe the situation is very dire. But if you are the head of the Shifa Hospital and you're standing there either giving an interview to a foreign outlet or releasing tweets, you may very well have a Hamas gunman standing right next to you. And so he may be dictating what you actually say, what you can say, and what you can't say. Uh, and this is just a fact, a fact of life in terms of uh, how things operate uh, inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, it's also, you know, it's also amazing, right? That uh, you know there are photographers, as, as we know, uh, and there are kind of local uh, journalists working for foreign outlets inside the Gaza Strip. Um, you know, have you seen one picture of a of a Hamas militant, Hamas terrorist, Hamas gunman, uh, rocket being fired? Never, not only in this war, but in previous wars, you never see it. And so that also should tell you a lot about what you're able to cover and what you're not able to cover uh, from inside the Gaza Strip, because the consequences for you personally, and also if you're local, then your family uh, could be dire. So again, we're talking about the asymmetry in this conflict. Uh, there's a major asymmetry in terms of how, how media and just regular people operate uh, in a country like Israel, covering a war, interacting with the military here, um, as you know, frustrating as it might be for some, uh, and, it, and in some respects it can be frustrating, but it's a lot more open and upfront with the media than anything you've ever gotten out of the Gaza Strip. So that's just in terms of the situation inside Shifa. I, look, it, I think it's awful. It's probably an awful situation inside the hospital. Uh, the latest, I think, over the past over the past day is that Israel may be offering to move in incubators, to move babies out of Shifa down to the south. Uh, you know, this is the resolution it's, it's getting to because uh, the situation obviously on a humanitarian level is, is extremely, extremely difficult, but also it has wider strategic reverberations uh, on the conduct of the war, right? Every tweet, every image, every report from inside Shifa or really inside, from inside Gaza goes global, uh, and then that has an impact on various uh, foreign capitals. And that, in turn, has an impact on how much time Israel has to to prosecute this war because, you know, the dip diplomatic pressure, as we all know, is is growing due to uh, the civilian casualties and just the humanitarian situation uh, inside Gaza. So that's the way all this works, and we have to be very clear-eyed uh, about that. So that is with regard to Shifa. And finally, just in terms of what Israel has planned for Shifa, uh, also unclear to the best of my understanding. And I've uh, looked into this uh, repeatedly uh, in recent weeks to say nothing of uh, the past hour. Israel would very much not want to move in with force into the hospital. Israel very much hopes that people just evacuate the hospital of their own volition uh, and that Israel can then move in. And obviously it won't have the element of surprise, but it'll go in and essentially dismantle this Hamas military installation. That's the Israeli hope. Uh, again, how long that will take, what happens if people don't fully evacuate, uh, unclear.
unclear. It's also unclear, like we were talking about earlier, whether Israel can get to the underground complex below Shifa without necessarily having to go into the hospital. Uh, it remains to to be seen how Israel uh, wants to handle that. But but uh, yes, it's, it's Shifa is going to be a major focus. Uh, some other hospitals are already a major focus. Uh, and as we saw yesterday via the IDF, they've already essentially uh, received and forced the evacuation of the Rantisi Hospital, uh, also in the northern Gaza Strip, and uh, the IDF uh, naval commandos, along with the uh, IDF spokesman, uh, Daniel Hagari, a former naval commando, went in there yesterday and uh, issued a kind of video uh, of what was in the basement of Rantisi Hospital, essentially uh, weapons and arms cache. Uh, and then they also believe that hostages were actually moved in there after October 7th and held there and maybe even received some medical treatment there before uh, being spirited away, likely via tunnel uh, to another location. So, uh, you know, Rantisi Hospital also has tunnels under it and um, was used as a military installation, most likely uh, by Hamas. Oh, good. Love to hear that. Um, and we are going to talk uh, later about the complications of us knowing this to be true because we are receiving the information from the IDF, which uh, is a trusted source, versus many folks outside of Israel who do not trust those sources. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but I think it um, definitely gets to the core of some of these issues and how the international community is, is seeing this war versus how we are. I mean, we might as well get into it now. Uh, okay. I would, I would, I would frame it. I would, I would look because it's such a big issue, right? Because this is how people follow the war and follow events, and then they make up their own minds and then choose to go and protest on the streets. I so, like with any source of information, you have to take what the IDF tells you and the Israeli government tells you uh, with a grain of salt, right? Uh, that's the that's the correct approach. Now, having said all of that, uh, you you judge the information you're getting from the IDF based on past performance and their past track record. And so let's say if they say something to you or they issue something and it turns out to be false, then the next time you're going to say, well, why should I believe you now? You weren't upfront with me uh, previously. Uh, and but the op- How often does that happen? Has that, has that happened? They've actually been, uh, especially in this campaign, very upfront. Uh, about what what is happening, what's not happening, to the extent that they can answer the question. Sometimes they don't answer the question because it's classified, censored. They they don't want to kind of tip their hand. Uh, but overall, I would say again, it's not a hundred percent, and you have to be very um, clear eyed that you're also dealing with uh, a military at war and a government at war. So I'd say overall, the information that you're getting is is fairly um, fairly candid. Sometimes surprisingly so in terms of things that you you hear, whether on record or background or in kind of private conversations about, okay, this is what we're planning, and then it actually happens, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, the track record is not perfect. I don't think any source is perfect, but uh, it's, let's put it, it's a, to get to your point, it's a lot more credible than what we're getting out of Hamas in Gaza, which is a, a dictatorship and a regime of fear, and a bunch of terrorists who slaughtered babies and women uh, and everyone else uh, on October 7th. So again, in terms of believing and not believing what is coming out of the two sides, uh, yes, you know, you shouldn't take the IDF says, what the IDF says as, uh, you know, the, the scrolls coming down from Mount Sinai. 
but you should definitely not believe everything that you hear coming out of Gaza, um, especially when it might be being released under coercion or under less than ideal circumstances. Um, now, having said that, I, I, you know, I have no patience for people who who kind of want to tar all information coming out of Gaza as, uh, you know, fake news or prejudiced. Uh, I think we also have to be very, like I said, clear-eyed and empathetic about the very, very difficult conditions currently in Gaza, uh, both displaced people, both uh, civilian casualties, uh, and just the, the dire humanitarian situation. Um, I think all that is is accurate. Uh, even the IDF admits it as such. You know, the IDF would qui- would quibble about how dire the situation is in terms of conditions in South Gaza, and that's a big debate between the IDF and international aid organizations. But uh, you know, it's not uh, it's not great. Um, but again, then it goes back to the question: who who is responsible? Who should be held responsible? What are the alternatives in terms of? what happened on October 7th and then the obvious fallout. You know, no country, others have said it, and I'll repeat it here, no country would just sit idly by uh, after a terrorist group invaded your territory and slaughtered 1,400 people, the vast majority just innocent civilians. By the way, the vast majority also kind of left-wing Israeli civilians and uh, very much uh, for peace and coexistence with uh, with the Palestinians, especially uh, their neighbors in Gaza. Uh, what are the alternatives? What would you have Israel or any other country do uh, after an event like October 7th? Sure. And I think it's really challenging for those of us like you and, you and me who live in countries with a free press to understand what it's like to be reporting out of Gaza, where it's it's hard to imagine the level of independence, if any, that journalists have. Even people who pride themselves and are trying to be good journalists, um, there's obviously a very uh, intense role that Hamas is playing in in shaping the conversation, shaping the media coming out of the strip. Right. And now moving and to, on to a potential hostage deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, uh, I'll, we'll move on to, to the issue of the hostages. But again, just to underline the point, uh, this is a major plank of Hamas's war strategy, right? The worse things get in Gaza, the more, mm-hmm. the more pressure diplomatically internationally is applied to Israel to stop. And if Israel stops short of achieving the three objectives that they laid out, then Hamas declares a victory. So it's not only in terms of kind of global Absolutely. public opinion and just the optics of it. This is a major part of, of their strategy. And I will add that on October 7th, it surely seemed as though Hamas had no regard for how the international community perceived them, given how barbaric they behaved. But in the days since, in the weeks since, it's become clear that they actually recognize the strategic importance for them of being perceived not um, as so brutal. And so that's part of why they were releasing a few hostages at the beginning, which is what we're about to get to, um, and, and why they are trying to be perceived um, more favorably, <laughs> despite um, my inability to understand how anyone could see them that way in the aftermath of October 7th. Yeah. Um, now, I think, moving on to <laughs> go for it, Nara. I know you have more to say. No, well, I mean, these podcasts could be two hours long, and I obviously have a lot to say about all these issues, but I know. There, there is a tension, right? There are certain... Hamas officials out of Gaza trying to do major damage control, just given the barbarity on display on October 7th. I'm not entirely convinced, in fact, I'm not convinced at all, that the barbarity wasn't a big part of Yahya Sinwar and Hamas's plans. In other words, to to terrorize Israel, uh, to terrorize the southern communities, uh, to instill 
fear and panic amongst Israelis and kind of shock, shock and awe, to use the term, um, regionally, uh, to essentially send a message to everyone and also via that, just the scale of October 7th to essentially ignite uh, the entire region. I think that was a big part of of their plans. That's also why they filmed a lot of it, just the depravity and the very gruesome acts that were committed. So uh, I think I think that was part of it. And, uh, and you know, some of it worked for Hamas, uh, some of it didn't, uh, but now they're, they're very much reaping what they sowed on October 7th. I think Jews all around the world, never mind, of course, Israelis, and I'm hoping many of our allies are waiting with bated breath to hear good news about the hostages being held in Hamas captivity in the Gaza Strip and to hear that there's a deal for their release. Uh, we know there are increasingly large rallies spearheaded by the families of those held captive, calling for any type of deal to be struck, maybe a prisoner swap that will bring them home. Now, Netanyahu ind- indicated yesterday that he was approaching some type of deal that could at least bring home, um, you know, maybe 80, I heard, different numbers of the, the, um, the hostages. So um, I, I want us to talk about the, the possible configurations of such a release. And in the meantime, we've received the very terrible news that one of the captives, or believed to be a captive, Vivian Silver, a longtime peace activist with OMEP, the Alliance for Middle East Peace, as well as Women Wage Peace, two organizations we've worked very closely with over the years, was pronounced dead as well as another captive, Noah Marciano, um, who was uh, an off-duty soldier. And, uh, of course, it's just really terrible news to, to wake up to a few days in a row. As awful as the hostage situation is, I, I suppose at least we had hope that they were alive and could be ultimately returned home. And at this point, I'm wondering if you can help us understand if there are details emerging from the negotiations with Qatar. Is it being... Are we finding out that these two women and others were killed in captivity? Were they never held captive to begin with? I know there's a lack of clarity around the actual information coming out about missing people. So how close are we to gaining more information about the hostages? And if you see any path forward to bringing our families home already and, and of course, alive. So I'll say a couple of things. Vivian Silver, the peace activist uh, from, I think it was Kfar Aza, but correct me if I'm wrong. She was believed to have been taken into captivity, but that was incorrect, that it just took five weeks to identify her body um, in, the, um, in the pathology lab. So essentially, she was considered a hostage, and now she's considered a, a uh, fatality of October 7th. So that just goes to show you, um, A, what, what happened on October 7th, and then B, the complete, complete disregard of Hamas uh, for anybody caught in their path, right? Uh, this woman who, who I didn't know, but a lot of people that we know knew her quite quite well. Uh, she was a very prominent peace activist and a very prominent promote, prominent promoter of um, you know Palestinian self determination, Palestinian rights, Palestinian dignity, and uh, this is what Hamas did to her on October seventh. It took five weeks for Israel to identify her body. Um, and then in terms of the the soldier that was uh, pronounced dead, she was actually uh, taken hostage. And I'm not going to get into the full details, but uh, Hamas claims that she was killed by, uh, by uh, Israeli strikes. Now, we have no idea uh, if that's true or not, but that's essentially the, the line that Hamas has put out there over the past two days. Uh, and this morning, the IDF confirmed that she uh she had died in uh in captivity and so 
uh, it's it's a tragedy, uh, but it's also uh, par for the course. I might have said this uh, in previous episodes, but uh, we have to be ready for these types of things to to keep happening. It's a way for Hamas to apply psychological terror and pressure both on the Israeli government, but really on the Israeli public via the hostage families. Because when they hear that one of their loved ones uh, died in captivity, they're going to up the pressure, um, and arguably rightfully so, from their point of view on the government to cut any deal possible uh, for the return of their loved ones as soon as possible. And so this is, um, it wasn't unexpected from my point of view. It was tragic, uh, but I think this will this will keep happening as uh, the news tightens uh, around Hamas's neck inside the Gaza Strip while they still hold you know, over 200 people hostage. Now, big picture, uh, I think since the second week of the war, if not before, uh, every few days we hear about a possible breakthrough and a possible hostage deal brokered by Qatar and maybe by Egypt, by prim- but primarily by Qatar. Uh, and the broad strokes are, are fairly understood in terms of an initial hostage deal. Effectively, uh, children, women, and elderly held by Hamas will be released in return for a multi-day ceasefire, truce, suspension of hostilities, whatever you want to call it, uh, humanitarian aid and fuel coming into the Gaza Strip, and the release of Palestinian women and minors held in Israeli prisons. That's essentially the broad strokes of, of a possible hostage deal. So, you know, it could happen tonight, it could happen tomorrow, or it might just be more play acting by Hamas because they understand better than anybody that once they uh, lose the hostages, right, they won't release all of them, but a big chunk of them, they're more susceptible. They're more susceptible, number one, to uh, to Israeli military action. But number two, and this is also a big plank of their, of their war strategy here, uh, they want to foment instability and unrest amongst the Israeli public and in Israeli society. And the best way for them to do that is to get a whole brouhaha going uh, in terms of the hostages via by their families and loved ones who, um, like you said, are holding mass protests. And now today they started marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, essentially having the families and by extension the Israeli public demand of their government to stop the war, to stop the war, essentially stop the war, cut any deal you have to, and get the people home, get the hostages home. That's that's uh, that's a strategy, um, just one plank of Yahya Sinwar's strategy. And so the longer they delay and the longer they dangle the prospect of a hostage deal and the more they kind of maintain that, you know, the hostages may, may be dying in captivity, the more that pressure will, will build. Um, now, I wish I had an easy answer for how to square the circle, uh, but it's a very, very difficult reality, like I said, within which this military campaign is being is being waged in. Speaking of Yahya Sinwar's strategy, you wrote a piece in the Financial Times last week. It's called Dead Man Walking, if anyone wants to read it, about how he essentially deceived all of Israel's intelligence community, who completely misunderstood him, misunderstood his motives, and how that led us to the disaster of October 7th, which Sinwar is largely responsible for. So can you elaborate more on the perception of Sinwar and Hamas as a result, and what everyone really got wrong about them and paint a better picture for us of who this man actually is, what drives him. Um, because we've spoken in the past about how everyone believed them to be rational when really they're quite ideological. So he was viewed maybe rational and ideological are not the right terms. I think, 
I think he was always viewed as a very violent and extreme person, but he's also viewed as more kind of maybe pragmatic than other, you know, Hamas militants and leaders. Uh, and so for the longest time, he was viewed as someone Israel could, could do business with, uh, especially after he took, uh, took power in Gaza through their kind of opaque internal elections and became the leader of Hamas in Gaza in 2017. Now, in terms of deception and his own story, if we backtrack slightly, uh, Sinwar, uh, or as he's known uh, by everyone, Abu Ibrahim. So Abu Ibrahim Sinwar uh, came to the fore in the 1980s. He was one of the founders of the Hamas military wing, the Izzedin al-Qassam brigades. Uh, he was a, a close aide and a whisper in the ear, as someone put it, uh, to Hamas founder, uh, the kind of legendary uh, Hamid Yassin, uh, the, the sheikh, in, in the wheelchair. And Sinwar, uh, in the mid to late 80s, had one specialty above all, uh, and that was tracking down uh, Palestinians suspected of collaborating with Israel. So he's essentially the, the internal security chief for Hamas, uh, and he's originally from Khan Yunus, so it earned him the nickname the Butcher of Khan Yunus for his uh, very, very grisly methods of uh, dispatching of those suspected of collaborating with Israel. Sometimes it wasn't even true, uh, according to the Israeli sources that I spoke to. They just kind of killed people because, uh, well, for whatever reason. Yeah, Sinwar was arrested and then tried in an Israeli military court and charged uh, with at least four more murders. Uh, he suspected of committing at least 12 personally, uh, and he got uh, a number of life terms in Israeli prison. So essentially he spent 22 years from 1989 to 2011 in Israeli prison. And that's where he learned fluent Hebrew. Uh, he apparently read all the books, uh, you know, about Jabotinsky, about Begin, about Rabin, all the big kind of political figures and Zionist and Israeli history. Uh, followed Israeli politics and Israeli society very closely uh, during his time in prison. There's a famous interview uh, from Israeli uh, television of him in the prison yard in, I believe it was 2006. And Sinwar in fluent Hebrew essentially telling the Israeli public that, hey, before, before this election, a big issue should be uh, the Israeli government uh, making a deal and cutting you know, a truce with, with Hamas. Because according to Sinwar, you know, we all know that Israel has 200 nuclear weapons and has the most advanced air force in the region, so there's no hope for us as Hamas to dismantle Israel. Now, Sinwar said this to an Israeli TV crew in fluent Hebrew in 2006. Now, at the time also, he was the head of Hamas uh, prisoners in, in all Israeli prisons, a very influential post. Uh, and then in the Gilad Shalit deal, uh, the prisoner swap in 2011, he was number one on the list. He was the first Palestinian prisoner on the list. There wouldn't have been a deal for Gilad Shalit and the thousand plus other Palestinian prisoners uh, if Sinwar wasn't released. So after 2011, he gets released back to the Gaza Strip, and that's where he starts his, his ascent uh, in the organization. Uh, initially, he's the liaison between the military wing and the political wing uh, in Gaza, uh, but very quickly, like I said, uh, becomes the overall leader of Hamas in, in the Gaza Strip in 2017. And since 2017, up until essentially October 6th, Israel... And I heard this for years, and he was a fascinating person and figure for me, because I always ask the question from everyone I talk to on the Israeli side, you know, what is Sinwar thinking? What's the strategy? It seems to be working. Essentially, Sinwar uh, used the calibrated use of force 
to extract concessions from Israel. So when, when we talk about the collaborative use of force, we talk about you know limited rocket fire, border marches and riots uh, on the border fence that some of you may, may remember, uh, incendiary balloons at, and kites that they send over and that burn uh, Israeli farms uh, in southern Israel and so on and so forth. And there was always a method to the madness because it worked. And after every round and every kind of uptick in hostilities and the calibrated use of force, Israel would give Sinwar, i.e. Hamas, i.e. Gaza, more either financial benefits, Qatari cash, more worker permits. And on the eve of October 7th, it was, I think, almost 20,000 worker permits for laborers from Gaza into Israel. Uh, at some point, Israel acquiesced to the opening of a separate border uh, commercial crossing between Egypt and Gaza. Essentially, Hamas was moving in everything they wanted from Egypt with very little uh, inspection. And now we kind of understand how they built up their, their massive arsenal. So, and by the way, Hamas was taxing all these goods. So it was making a cut off of those profits, uh, more infrastructure support, more imports, more exports, and the list is endless. But it worked for him. And so that's why everyone in the Israeli system thought, and especially Israeli intelligence, thought that, okay, uh, he's a very violent, severe, unpleasant man. And I interviewed a few people who spent hundreds of hours with him. Uh, but he's pragmatic, and it's someone we can do business with. And uh, all the time, apparently, uh, Sinwar was preparing the ground for what we saw on October 7th, uh, like we said before, total war against Israel. This was not the caliber used of force against Israel, uh, very much the opposite. And so Sinwar uh, deceived Israel for decades. Israel got him very, very wrong. And uh, he, along with uh, the Qassam Brigades, um, you know, dealt Israel the, the heaviest blow, arguably, uh, it's, it's ever suffered. Uh, and so that is Yahya Sinwar in, in a nutshell. Uh, I spoke to a few people who had amazing, amazing quotes about him. You know, one person called him a sociopath, uh, but he didn't mean that as an insult. He meant it as a medical diagnosis. Uh, yes, in, yeah, yes, in war, he said, and this is a person who sat with him uh, many, many times, uh, doesn't care whether he has to sacrifice 10,000 people or, or more to achieve his goals. He's singularly focused uh, and also, by the way, has exceptional abilities in terms of his charisma, in terms of his, uh, I guess, power of personality, uh, but he he's a very, very dangerous man uh, that right now is public enemy number one to bring it full circle. Uh, dead man walking is what Netanyahu and literally every other Israeli political and military official has said uh, will be Sinwar's fate. Uh, he will he will be killed if, if Israel can find him and track him down. And I'll also remind us all that, of course, this further complicates and reminds us of the complications of prisoner swaps because he was, of course, somebody released in a prisoner swap. Um, who is now responsible for many more deaths. And by the way, Shani, just to put a, a cherry on this, on the world's worst Sunday, uh, Israel saved his life. Israeli doctors in 2004 removed an abscess that was lodged next to his brain and saved his life. I could have done without knowing that, but thank you, Nick. Full stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's move on to the future of the Gaza Strip. We know that um, Netanyahu explicitly said that they're not planning to reoccupy Gaza. And you have Biden, of course, facing a lot of pressure saying we want some clarity on when Israel is going to leave, and leave Gaza. We don't want them there indefinitely. Of course, many in the settler community who are still very prominent figures in this Israeli government are hoping there will be a reoccupation of Gaza that allows them to rebuild the Jewish communities there. 
So what are some realistic scenarios for the future of the Gaza Strip? And I'm also curious, I know you as a journalist don't want to pass so much judgment, but what would maybe be one of the more ideal scenarios for regional stability and security for both Israelis and Palestinians? Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> your, your second question, um, it, we're not dealing with uh, optimal scenarios and optimal solutions right now. We're dealing with uh, shades of um, difficult to very bad scenarios. Uh, and that's just the reality of the situation as it currently stands. Uh, one very bad scenario would be the one that you alluded to, which is you have these right-wing uh, crazies, for lack of a better word, some even senior ministers in the current Netanyahu coalition calling for you know not only a reoccupation of Gaza, but rebuilding the settlements uh, that existed in Gaza before 2005. Um, that's uh, not realistic. Uh, that's not on the table, but they keep saying it, and it's... Um, not helpful, but it's of a piece with the Israeli far right uh, making things very, very difficult uh, for the overall war effort. That may be the subject of that could be a, a an entire podcast episode unto itself. But in terms of post war scenarios, uh, look, Israel is still trying to figure it out. Uh, from the best I've understood, there is no set plan. Uh, there's a military operation currently ongoing in its, I would argue, second stage. Uh, but there may be a very prolonged, at least maybe a couple of months, transition period from this current stage into whatever a post-war scenario would, would look like or the beginning of a post-war scenario. Uh, in other words, if someone uh, just put it to me, uh, it's not going to be a situation like in previous uh, Gaza rounds or previous Israeli wars where a ceasefire comes into place and a referee blows the whistle and, and that'll be that. Um, I imagine the idea for a variety of reasons will still maintain a major force uh, of of troops inside the Gaza Strip, uh, continuing in the effort to dismantle dismantle Hamas. Uh, you know, maybe upholding basic security and basic services because you're not just going to move in a, a international force if fighting is still underway. So this transition period uh, could last uh, an unclear amount of time. After that, uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, different different ideas being floated around. Uh, some by people uh, we we know very well and, and love love a lot. Uh, look, the best case scenario would be, you know, some international force or a heavily Arab regional force with a heavy Palestinian Authority component coming in and reasserting both civilian and security control over the Gaza Strip. That would be the the best case scenario, and then. Uh, uh, a Gaza Strip freed of Hamas rule uh, would then be free to actually rebuild properly and and hopefully uh, set itself up for for a better future. How you get from the current situation to that, it'll be difficult because A, you need still to deal with uh, getting rid of Hamas, uh, whatever form that takes. Uh, B, Israeli security equities, as it were, need to be upheld, right? So to make sure that anything that comes after Hamas or Hamas remnants don't still threaten Israel and primarily southern Israel. Uh, and then you have to get the IDF out of there uh, in some form or fashion. And Netanyahu has said in recent days he wants to maintain overall security control in any post-war scenario over the Gaza Strip. Okay, what does that mean in practice? Right? Are you going to have forces inside the Strip? Is it security control on the periphery of Gaza? Are you going to have forces, say, in the southern tip of the Gaza Strip near Rafah to kind of control the border crossing and 
the, the smuggling that allowed Hamas to build up its military arsenal, all these things still are being thought through. Uh, and that also depends first and foremost on, on the, the coming, <laughs> the coming days and weeks and, and maybe months of, of the ongoing military operation. Um, you know, so many Arab states and Arab governments and especially the Palestinian Authority won't just ride in uh, after Israel is finished. Um, they won't want to be seen as kind of picking up the, the pieces uh, that Israel that Israel left behind. So again, this is a major both military effort, civilian effort, diplomatic effort uh, that will all have to coalesce. And like I said at the top, uh, the Israeli, the current Israeli government is not making things any easier when you have uh, ministers talking about setting up new new settlements, or you had a minister last week saying that he wanted to, metaphorically, he later clarified, drop an atomic bomb on the Gaza Strip, or it's not very helpful when you have both uh, uh, members of the opposition and the coalition talking about uh, a resettlement plan for uh, tens of thousands of Gazans and more in Western countries. Uh, That does nothing to actually endear you and buy you credit in Arab capitals and in the West in terms of your overall intentions for for this territory. Um, so it's a very, very complicated situation. Um, I wish I had uh, easy answers, but again, uh, at some point, uh, people will still be living in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Israel will have its own security interests, but those people also have just basic life and civilian and humanitarian interests um, and also who will actually govern you know govern or rule or control this territory um, and there are also you know other ideas in terms of kind of localized leadership coming up clans non-Hamas officials you know allied with the Fatah party I mean there are all kinds of ideas you know whether top down or bottom up uh, but it's a bit too early to to say uh, what plan will actually be adopted because Israel uh, doesn't know yet Speaking of complicated situations, let's move us on to the West Bank, where the Palestinian Authority seems to be trying to hold on to whatever shred of credibility they maintain by refusing tax revenues from Israel, um, which are you know trimmed down because they deducted the money designated for Gaza. So let's we'll talk a little bit, bit about the economic implications. Never mind that 150,000 Palestinians who typically work in Israel are not able to enter for I think obvious reasons, um, and. 100,000, I I believe, Palestinian Authority officials are not being paid their salaries. Um, So the economic situation is very untenable right now. Um, And then there is also, of course, the security situation with, uh, you know, radical settler activist from the religious Zionist party, Tzvi Sukkot, now in charge of foreign affairs and the defense subcommittee on Judea and Samaria, right? We know that settler violence is, uh, there are, I think, about 172 incidents of that. Uh, We have the IDF going in on raids to um, arrests, uh, I think the last number I saw was about 1,500 um, suspected of, of terrorism or collaborating with Hamas. So very uh, sort of unstable economic and security situation there. So why don't you take us through that and, and where the Israeli government can play a positive role, where they are failing to do so and all of this. So yes, uh, <laughs> multi-front theater, very uh, complicated situation and a very complicated situation on, on the West Bank for all the reasons that, that you mentioned. If we, if we look at it since October 7th, there's been a very aggressive IDF uh, counter Hamas, counter Islamic Jihad operation going on inside the West Bank, uh, 
daily and nightly raids, uh, very, very aggressive. Um, I think over 180 Palestinians have been killed just since October 7th. Uh, now, obviously, some of those are, are militants and gunmen and terrorists, uh, but some of them are just uh, Palestinians caught up in the crossfire or um, you know, at a checkpoint. So uh, that's worth keeping in mind just in terms of the overall uh, uh, stability or lack thereof in the West Bank. Uh, if this were normal times without a war in Gaza or, you know, a mini war on the northern border with Lebanon, uh, this would be the biggest, the biggest issue and the biggest news. Uh, but the West Bank right now is um, a secondary theater uh, to what's going on in, in Gaza, obviously. So you have that uh, very, very heavy uh, IDF military operation combined with the fact that you have essentially reserve battalions being moved into the West Bank because all the uh, infantry and other battalions who normally police and control the West Bank were moved uh, either to Gaza or the Lebanese border. So you have uh, these IDF forces there that are also in and of themselves not, um, not doing much or not helping matters in terms of the overall stability combined with uh, extremist settlers, essentially Jewish terrorists, uh, using the opportunity of uh, the country at war to either attack Palestinians or drive them off the land. Uh, so they see it as a great opportunity to, uh, to get theirs. Uh, again, uh, to say that it's unhelpful is, is, is to put it very, very mildly. Uh, I think in previous episodes, I called it uh, morally disgraceful uh, and hugely, hugely harmful, uh, not only to the Palestinians themselves, clearly, uh, but also to the Israeli war effort, uh, just in terms of, avoiding uh, a major explosion in the West Bank, which would then really turn this into a three, at least three front theater. Um, so again, the Israeli government and especially IDF Central Command need to get a grip on this phenomenon. They have to get a grip on this phenomenon just in terms of overall security and stability in the West Bank. Now you couple that with the fact that since October 7th, the crossings from the West Bank into Israel have been closed. So essentially for almost a month and a half, uh, Palestinians that used to work in Israel or even in the settlements uh, haven't been able to work. So you have that economic pressure combined with what you alluded to, the fact that uh, far-right ministers, especially Finance Minister Betzalus Smotrich, started playing politics with the tax transfers that Israel gives uh, to the PA, uh, collects taxes on behalf of the PA, and then transfers it every month. So Smotrich started playing politics with it, and other people, including the defense minister here, Yoav Gallant, said, look, you know, the PA authority and security forces are actually working to uphold stability. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. So again, hugely, hugely harmful to, uh, to the overall Israeli war effort against Hamas, right? This shouldn't be a war against all Palestinians. It shouldn't be a war, by the way, against all Gazans. It should be a war focused on Hamas, uh, whether in the West Bank and definitely Gaza. So uh, you have the lack of Palestinian workers in Israel, and now they don't have the money because uh, essentially Israel uh, ultimately wanted to deduct some of the money that it transferred to the PA, and then in protest, the PA said it wasn't accepting any of the money. So uh, yet again, uh, the Palestinian Authority and the civil servants in the PA, and especially the security forces, uh, will get uh, just a fraction of their salaries. Again, that does nothing uh, for overall stability, and it needs to that needs to change. It needs to change. Central command of the IDF needs to get a grip on the situation. The Israeli government needs to make this a priority. 
and the international community and the Biden administration in particular need to um, apply whatever pressure and pull whatever levers they need to in order to to make it stop, uh, both on its own merits and the fact that the last thing anybody here needs is the West Bank blowing up and the PA actually being uh, being toppled or uh, succumbing to internal pressures. And we've said this before, and I'll say it again, the PA security forces since October 7th have been working from their end, and I guess to the best of, of their abilities, uh, to to keep things, I don't want to say relatively calm, but uh, again, from not escalating and exploding further. And unlike the early stages of the Second Intifada in the early 2000s, the PA security forces have not turned their guns on the IDF or on Israelis. And that is not a minor point that cannot be taken for granted. The uh, situation in the West Bank is very, very delicate and it needs to be brought back from the brink. As you know, Nari, I really, really want us to end on some kind of positive note. So I will share that it's right now 11.15 a.m. on Tuesday, November 14th. And as we speak, there are tens of thousands heading to Washington, D.C. Uh, for a rally to support Israel, um, call for an end to anti-Semitism, which we, of course, see rising, and to bring back the release of hostages. Right now, IPF, Israel Policy Forum and IPF Atid have sent a delegation. They're anticipating 60,000 are going to attend, and I wouldn't be surprised if the number ends up being higher. So that's, well, that's what I have for optimism, at least, that there are so many people coming together in this moment um, sort of stand unified right now. But Neri, I'm hoping that you also have uh, some sort of hopeful note from this week in, in some of your meetings in, in the field. So, oh man, you don't, do you? <laughs> I don't know if I have any particular anecdotes. No, but uh, but I will say, and this is maybe a, it's difficult to get a, this sense when you're on the outside looking in on everything that's happening here. And again, we don't try to sugarcoat things uh, on the Israel policy pod. We like to uh, to tell it like it is. But I can't stress to you how how much more stable, I guess is the right word. I don't want to use the word normal, but stable or the situation, let's put it this way, the situation has stabilized to a far greater extent now than a month ago. So if a month ago we were all still very much in shock at October 7th and the aftermath and wondering whether there would be a full-on escalation, if not an invasion from the north uh, and, you know, sleeper cells running around the south that infiltrated on October 7th and, and everything along with it. Now you have a situation where the ground operation is grinding along inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, like I said at the top, in less than two weeks, they've reached the very heart of Gaza City and are operating there and have even uh, taken journalists in. So that shows you it's uh, it's uh, safe enough to, to bring in foreign press and, and local press. Uh, so you have that. The rockets have decreased. So you have a lot more normalcy, say, at least in the center of the country than you did before. The north is a major concern. We didn't really have time to get into it, but it's a major concern, but it's still within the quote-unquote parameters uh, below uh, a major escalation. Uh, despite the fact that Israel has taken casualties and also Hezbollah has taken seven times the casualties uh, in southern Lebanon, but it's still not not wholly uh, what it could be, and it would be a very different situation here if if there was a major escalation in the north. Uh, you know, Yemen, they fire missiles and drones every once in a while, also uh, from Syria, but 
again, nothing uh, that Israel hasn't been able to deal with. Uh, and so all in all, um, you know, there's essentially a war in the northern border and war in the south, but, uh, but there is a greater degree of stability, let's say, um, than what was the case even a few weeks ago. And uh, on a more optimistic note, we can end here. Uh, I've gotten reports, and next week I think I'm going to go see it for myself, uh, Israelis have begun returning uh, to southern Israel to places like Sderot and some of the communities in Kibbutzim and Moshevim that weren't uh, overrun and slaughtered and burned to the ground. Uh, so some people have actually begun returning, and the IDF uh, is working to to rebuild a lot of what was destroyed on October 7th and its aftermath. So in that sense, uh, the lack of rockets and just the massive IDF presence either in southern Israel or inside Gaza uh, is making a difference, uh, is returning a semblance of security or a sense of security to uh to the population so uh hopefully that that continues and uh and uh you know we uh we don't return here next week or in future episodes and say well that was a nice uh interregnum this kind of uh this respite uh in the middle of this war uh ahead of something worse but uh so far so good city that actually was uh relatively optimistic so i and and kind of heartening to hear that people feel safe returning home, at least a few of them for now. So with that, we will wrap up and hopefully see everybody or see each other and hear everybody's questions for next week. Uh, looking forward to it, Chini, and uh, take care. Good luck uh, with the marches in the States. And uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have more positive news and maybe more, more clarity uh, in terms of the next stages of the war uh, next week. On October 7th, 2023, Israelis faced the unthinkable when Hamas militants breached the Gaza border, carried out a violent rampage, took hundreds of Israelis and other foreign citizens hostage, and indiscriminately slaughtered at least 1,400 people, mostly civilians, many of them women, children, and elderly. This conflict has upended Israeli society and exacerbated an already dire humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip where thousands of Palestinians have already been killed by Israeli airstrikes and misfired rockets launched by militants. As Israelis and Palestinians gird themselves for the war ahead, and we all process the traumatic events of the past two weeks, Israel Policy Forum experts have been providing timely, clear-headed, and sober analysis on the ongoing conflict. For all of our resources on the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, including a timeline of events from 1949 until now, explore our new Israel at War webpage. Links to all of these resources can be found in the show notes of this podcast. For more analysis, visit israelpolicyforum.org.